Turn left here, Mike. Mike smoothly turned the wheel hand over hand as his instructor had taught him. He returned his hands to nine and three on the wheel and slowly accelerated. Good. In a couple blocks, turn right. Mike signaled and began to turn on the little side street. Suddenly he was jerked back in his seat as the instructor slammed on his brake. Another car going 55 through town blew past them going the wrong way down the one-way street. Yes, that's right, the instructor had successfully fooled Mike into trying to turn the wrong way on a one-way street. What the instructor hadn't counted on was an idiot, I mean a beloved child of God, doing exactly that. Sometimes it's best to just stop before we get ourselves into further trouble. That's what happens in today's story from 2 Samuel. And paradoxically, stopping is one of the elements at the heart of true reformation. David has it pretty good by this point in the story. Throughout 1 Samuel, he had been on the run from Saul, Israel's first king. After he was crowned king, he fought Saul's loyalists and Philistines. He captured Jerusalem and made it his capital. And in the previous chapter, he brought the Ark of God up to Jerusalem. At this point in the story, David has no serious rivals. There are no imminent foreign threats. Life is peaceful. But something about this troubles David. Look, he tells the prophet Nathan, I'm living in a fancy house, but the Ark of God remains in a tent. God has done everything for David. Now, David wants to do something for God. What kind of loyal subject would he be if he didn't do something for the one who had given him everything? Plus, building a house for God would have other political benefits. Building a central house for the worship of God legitimizes David's reign. It keeps the priests and Levites under his control, it establishes David's capital, Jerusalem, as the site to worship and sacrifice. Note how in the book of Deuteronomy, God is very insistent through Moses, there will be one site where I will choose to put my name. So like everything David does, and like everything we do, David's desire to build a house for God is laden with mixed motivations. And God knows it. As good as David's intentions may be, his focus is entirely wrong. God asks David through Nathan, Are you, you, really going to build me, the God of the universe, the Lord of all creation, a house? Stop. Cancel the groundbreaking ceremony. Lay off the workers. Send back the lumber. You're not going to build me a house, David. I'm going to build you a house. One of the insights of the Reformation was that the gospel had become muddled under a morass of laws, of works. Do this to take some time off your grandpa Georg's time in purgatory, for instance. Do that to tap into a little grace for yourself. Pray these prayers. See that relic. Pay for that requiem mass. By an indulgence, do, 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 go, 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 when the essence of the gospel is stop.
Stop making a marketplace out of grace. Stop with all the incessant laws. Stop your own personal salvation project. Stop trying to earn your way into God's favor. Stop trying to be a good person and let yourself be God's person. Let yourself be made into the image of Christ. Let Christ save you, salve you, and sanctify you. Stop doing and start receiving. David has been a doing man all his life. He's been an active man. Now he's being asked to not do something. And as we knew, and as we know from the rest of the story, that proves to be very difficult for him. It is at this point in David's story that his faithfulness begins to wane. He has it good for a few more chapters. He makes quick work of various foreign armies, but then he sees Bathsheba from the rooftop in chapter 11. And things go disastrously wrong from there. And the troubles in David's house, wars of succession, infighting among his court, begin right after chapter 11. It's too much for David to simply receive God's promises. It's too hard for him to stop. And yet the unbreakable promise of God persists. Even when David is unfaithful, God is faithful. Even when the monarchy is destroyed with the Babylonian invasion and deportation, some 450 years later, God keeps the promise alive. But in a way no one would have dreamed of. 450 years after the deportation of Babylon, 550 years after the return from Babylon, 530 or so, God keeps the promise in a way no one thought possible. No longer is the promise of an eternal dynasty confined to a particular nation-state. No longer is this promise confined to a particular group of people. Now it is universal. Now the promise of a dynasty transcends David entirely and is for the whole people of God. And the descendant, the king, is the unlikely son of a carpenter from a little nowhere town in Galilee. Likewise, God is always faithful to us, and that promise of a king is also a promise to us, but not a king like every other king that's ever been on the face of the earth. Christ is the eternal king who gathers us into God's kingdom. Because we are Christ's own, we can finally stop. We can be reformed and transformed people in him. Reformation, in a way, is much like repentance. The word for repentance in Greek literally means to change one's mind. When we repent, we stop what we're doing. We have a change of mind, or more accurately, God changes our minds and our hearts. God makes us new. God stops us and starts us again on God's way. And when God does this, we find that we are transformed 
people, new people, people in Christ's image. We'll find that we're going the right way. And though we'll go off-road again and again all too often, God is still faithful. God will again stop us, turn us around, and get us back on the right way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, too often we find ourselves on dead-end streets. Help us to stop. Help us to turn around, go your way, trusting you are always faithful. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.